from Ski Tracks, it's the show people talk about. It's Talking with the Gravy Train, your source for Nordic news and one-on-one interviews with current Nordic skiing newsmakers of the day. Sometimes we'll look back and share the rich history of the sports, and sometimes we'll be engaged in the current topic of the day. And now, here's your host, longtime Olympic announcer, Peter Graves. Today on Talking with the Gravy Train, we have a very special guest in studio with us today. A man who was the 11-year coach and director of skiing at Dartmouth College. He's had an amazing career in Nordic sports, uh, an athlete himself on the U.S. ski team, a two-time U.S. Olympian in the sport of biathlon, and uh, now known as a very gifted trail designer. The man of which I'm talking about is John Morton, who sits in front of me here in studio today. Hello again, everybody. I'm Peter Graves. This is another edition of Talking with a Gravy Train. Morty, thank you very much. It's nice to have you with us today. And uh, we uh, come to everybody at the end of the season, giving them a context. But uh, certainly for many people around the world, uh, venues, great racing, etc., it's been a, a wonderful winter. It's been a terrific winter, Peter. And, and uh as, as I'm sure you'll mention, we had the opportunity to catch the final uh, cross-country World Cup in Quebec City uh, a couple of weekends ago, which was tremendously exciting. Great crowds, wonderful enthusiasm. Well, Morty, um, first of all, let, let's talk a little bit about your path and, and direction getting into this. I mean, you grew up in Walpole, New Hampshire, um, and you got into cross-country skiing and and later biathlon, and, and it changed your life. But give us the uh, uh, the abridged uh, tour of uh, your background. Sure. Well, I had the good uh, fortune of uh, uh, attending Tilton School in Tilton, New Hampshire, primarily because they had a ski team. And uh, at that time, Walpole High School uh, offered only basketball in the winter, and I was pathetic at basketball. So I took the opportunity to attend Tilton. In those days, uh, we, we were all four-event skiers, and I assumed that I probably would um, be a downhiller and jumping because I thought they took the list, least amount of talent. But um, I had the good fortune, I think it was maybe my um, uh, sophomore year, one of our cross-country skiers who also skied slalom was injured and couldn't ski cross-country, and I had his same boot size. So I was uh, at the last minute put into the cross-country race and actually did reasonably well so uh, that encouraged me to um, to train for a synchronicity it. based yeah. on boot size exactly right that I've that's never right heard. i think yeah. it's wonderful yeah nine and a half and i was very lucky <laughs> that uh, i had nine and a half feet and uh, the guy who was injured also did and uh, from there i um i went to middlebury college and i remember uh the opening um meeting for the ski team my freshman year the coach at the time bobo sheehan who was a legendary coach here in the Northeast for many years, uh, said to all of us freshmen, look around this room, boys, and you're going to see alpine skiers are di- a dime a dozen. If you want to ski for Middlebury, you'd better learn to ski cross-country. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, I felt, well, maybe this is my opportunity. About and, what year was that, Morty? Uh, that was in the uh, fall of 1964. 64. So I graduated from Middlebury in 68. Yeah. And at the time, Middlebury had um, compulsory ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps, for the first two years. It was during the Vietnam War, so many of us thought we were going to go one way or another. 
and we elected to stay in ROTC. And I had heard about this small um, unit of um, athletes that trained for the Army in Fort Richardson, Alaska, called the U.S. Biathlon Training Center. At the time, I didn't even know what biathlon was, but I learned that it was a combination of cross-country skiing and rifle marksmanship. So uh, I figured I could um, leverage my ROTC uh, experience and get a, an assignment to the um, training center in Alaska, which I did in the fall of 1968. So that allowed me to uh, break into biathlon. Morty, it also led you to Vietnam. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I had, I thought I had the system wired. The first two years, uh, I competed for, for the biathlon team in Europe in the winter. But um, coming back uh, in the spring of 1970, uh, I was handed my orders for Vietnam. And uh, I thought, boy, this is some big mistake. I'm supposed to be training for the 72 Olympics. But I was told due to equity in uh, lieutenant assignments and career advancement possibilities that I would, you know, serve my tour uh, as all the other infantry second lieutenants were doing. So I ended up going, uh, spent just under a year as a mobile advisory team leader down in the Mekong Delta. Now, I mean, uh, skiing changed your life, but my guess is also Vietnam it, it, it must have had an impact on your life and how you saw things and see things. You bet. Um, and in many ways, I feel very grateful for, obviously, for um, surviving in one piece, but also for the experiences and the um, the opportunities uh, to see a different part of the world and a different slice of life than uh, I had seen before. I can remember um, on the flight back from Vietnam, thinking nothing will ever really bother me again. And to some degree, that's true, although obviously there have been frustrations and disappointments. Um, when you um, live through a, an experience like that in combat, you everything else is in a different perspective. Yeah, very interesting and, and well said. So it took you to two Olympic Games, um, and... Um, and, and you were also part of the U.S. cross-country team at one point, too. So you yeah. were uh, one of those rather rare athletes that were on the national team in both sports, weren't you? Uh, that's correct. And uh, to be honest, I was basically trying to uh, um, use the system to, to my best advantage. In those days, sure. back in uh, the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, the biathlon program was not especially well-funded, certainly not in comparison to the U.S. cross-country team. And it was funded by the Army then, that's, right? That's US correct. Army? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was – biathlon was a relatively small unit, about 20 uh, primarily military people. We had some – There were. it was not exclusively Army. We had a couple of uh, uh, Navy people uh, – uh, a couple of uh, airmen. Mm -hmm. In those days, it was all male. There were there were not uh, women biathletes until uh, the late '80s, I believe. Um, but but the U.S. cross country team, which which did have women at that time, uh, and was much better funded, uh, had um, well organized training camps, off season, 
um, had much better medical support in terms of medical testing. And um, so I, I tried to uh, take advantage of what the biathlon program didn't offer at the time. Yeah. You were also a multi-time uh, team leader for the U.S. Uh, biathlon team. And I, I certainly remember vividly um, one time, I, I think it was 1981, but um, uh, we were together at World Biathlon Championships in Lake Placid. I was doing the PA announcing, and that was a stunning silver medal performance by Josh Thompson, um, who you worked with quite closely and you were very fond of, I think, and... and um, the role of team leader during that time must have also been interesting, to say the least. It was. It was. I, I felt uh, honored uh, to to be um, asked to fill that role. And it's, it's one of those things that if you do it properly, um, nobody knows you're there. But if you screw up, everybody knows. Yeah. And uh, um, I, I've had a terrific opportunity uh, to be on the shooting range when Josh won his silver medal, which actually I think was in 87. 87, you're yeah. right. Yes, because, that's right. But it, it was, as you mentioned, at Lake Placid. And that, of course, uh, put a lot of pressure on him uh, for the next year for Calgary. And he was poised to do very, very well in Calgary as well. But um, I think, in, in fact, there was just a lot of uh, pressure on him and high expectations. Yeah. And uh, biathlon is a very fickle sport. You, everything can go exactly right, and, and you miss one shot by a millimeter, and you go from the podium to the second page of the results instantly. It can be cruel in that way. I mean, because your you're, you're whole, in, in the context of that race, your life can turn around on one shot, can't it? Absolutely right. Yeah. And I think the uh, a parallel, perhaps, in... Uh, Another winter sport would be slalom because so many sure. uh, slalom skiers can have a, a winning run underway and the, the, uh, a pole hits the wrong side of the tip of their ski and they catch a tip and they're out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's very similar. So, Morty, um, a lot to cover here, and, and I may get back to a couple of subjects, but one I want to talk to is, is about the now, and that is um, – First, let's talk about U.S. Biathlon under Max Cobb, um, who is, uh, in full disclosure, a very a good friend of bo- both of ours, uh, whom we have deep respect for. Um, this program is really, I mean, particularly this year, has really come alive. What do you, what do you make of the results you've seen? Lowell Bailey, Susan, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think the team has been improving for a number of years, and uh, but... What a lot of people may not recognize is how intensely competitive it is at the World Cup and World Championship level. Um, I remember, I believe it was in, um, in 1988, and uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't use particular names here, but I was frustrated because one of the Olympic Committee of uh, members – uh, George Steinbrenner, who's the owner of the Yankees, mm-hmm. even before the games were really fully underway, started complaining about the results of the American athletes relative to his perception of how the summer 
Olympians performed. And he wanted to know why the heck we couldn't get the winter, U.S. winter sports athletes uh, to um, compete at the same uh, level that, that his perception of the, the summer sports. And he was thinking, I'm sure, of swimming and track and field and so forth. What, what he wasn't fully aware of is that not too long um, prior to the 88 games, the Soviet Union had disintegrated. So that typically prior to, say, um, 19, um, what was it, 80, I forget exactly when the Soviet Union came unglued, but yeah, let's say sure it's 80, 80, 89, 80, 88, 89, something in there. But it changed the map, but, certainly. But, but what, what happened was that in, in, in former times, basically when I was competing, we had to compete against four Soviets, four East Germans, four Norwegians, four Swedes, so on, and which was a which was a challenging array of of European talent. When the Soviet Union started to unravel, all of a sudden our American biathletes didn't have to compete just against four Soviets. They competed against four Russians, four Ukrainians, four Latvians, four Estonians, four Lithuanians four from Kazakhstan, mm. all of them had having been part of that Soviet um, um, dominating biathlon program. It was part of their national identity. There, there, were, there was a really wonderful, informative book written not too long ago about the Soviet biathlon program and how it just represented um, their national identity. Right, right. And, uh, and Steinbrenner had no, absolutely no knowledge of that. I mean, not to, to discredit anybody, but the U.S. bobsled team probably competes against, you know, maybe 15 other bobsleds. Mm-hmm. But somebody like Lowell Bailey is competing against more than 100 other athletes from more, at more than 30 other nations mm-hmm. on any day the the majority of them are capable of winning. So we're getting better and better. We are. It didn't just happen. No. And and my guess is, in in addition to to good coaching, uh, it, administration, and and good good talent identification, also we've had more World Cups in this country. I mean, we think of Fort Kent, Presque Isle, uh, and and. Uh, what they have done to help develop the sport in the U.S. on a high level, and other venues too, certainly. No, it's exactly right, Peter. And it's uh, difficult for our athletes to pack their bags in uh, November and travel to Europe and hopscotch all over Europe all winter long. And, you know, in spite of the, the good work you do and others that are trying to promote Nordic skiing in the United States, they're largely out of sight, even though... It's no exaggeration to say some of our athletes, like Susan Dunkley, for example, is a rock star yeah. in Norway. We had the opportunity to uh, go to the Biathlon World Championships in Oslo last winter, and there were thousands and thousands of Nor- Norwegian fans that were cheering Susan Dunkley, Susan Dunkley, when she came in to shoot. It was very gratifying to hear that. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, we can imagine. As was Cokie in his day. I mean, Absolutely. Uh, mob for autographs probably at home and colon, you know, but not walking down the street in Brattleboro, you know? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> in fact, I, I was a member of the biathlon team in 76 in Innsbruck, and we were training on the day that he won his silver medal. And several of us just walked from the biathlon range up to the cross-country stadium and saw the finish of that event. And there were athletes and coaches from all other nations that were coming over and slapping us on the back just because we had USA on our back. And Bill Koch, okay, number one, really good, really good, Bill Koch. And that evening, we Seefeld was where the Nordic events were held, little little village up in the mountains, um, probably, what, an hour from, from Innsbruck, which mm-hmm. was down in the valley. And uh, as we walked downtown that evening, with again, with our USA jackets on, all these kids were coming up to us with scraps of paper saying, Bill Coke, Bill Coke. And we were looking at each other like, you know, this, this kid does not want a John Morton autograph, some unknown biathlete. So there were about four of us that were all just signing Bill Coke so these little Austrian <laughs> kids could think they had something special. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, Morty, so um, maybe the American public doesn't quite get it uh, about the results this year, but um, people like you do. And, uh, I mean, uh, I know when I uh, opened up my Facebook and emails the day Lowell won, um, there was great excitement at our home, and, and I'm sure you too, because we get what it means. Absolutely. And the reality is we've been close a number of times. As you mentioned, Josh Thompson got a silver medal in 1987. And there have been other uh, – you know, Tim Burke uh, was leading the World Cup uh, in the preliminary races leading up to the Vancouver Olympics in 2010. And so we've had some some really impressive and promising results in the past. But we have never had a world champion, a senior world champion. Uh, and, and so this is a real landmark for the program. And Susan Dunkley uh, has got a silver medal at that same world championship. So it's not just one flash in a pan. It's not one lucky race for one athlete. This is a representation of a program that has gradually continued to improve and is now on the verge of of being one of the strong programs in the world in a very, very competitive field. Yeah. So I'm going to segue to another big part of your life, which is the trail thing. But just to give the trail thing some context... As you mentioned, we were both in Quebec. It was unbelievable. We've been lucky to go to many Olympic Games and see things and see the hoopla and what it's like in Europe or overseas. But Quebec left me and that experience with uh, what an old coach told me was my heart was smiling. I mean, I just was blown away by the crowds, more than 30,000 on Sunday. The the fans, little kids that parents drove them up from all over, you know, North America to be there. Uh, the fan base is something else. I, 
I, I, I, I'm embracing what I see is this as we approach what might be the new golden age for uh, cross-country skiing and and to uh, go along with that, the U.S. women particularly being so strong yep. right now as uh, the biathlon athletes are. Um, do you imagine we would see this time, John? Well, I certainly had hoped for it for many, many years and uh, had felt that it was possible. But it literally has been decades that I've been wondering, well, is it going to happen or, yeah. or can it happen? And, and the reality is that uh, we have so many other options in this country. I mean, if you think about a young um, person that is interested in sports and the outdoors, uh, there, there are a number of different uh, opportunities, some of them very well organized, mm -hmm. some of them that generate a lot of positive feedback in terms of uh, newspaper articles, things like that. For many, many years, um, Nordic skiers were um, not not misfits, but oftentimes you would say, well, what's the matter? Can't you play basketball? Mm -hmm. uh, it, but that's changing. And, and I think there are certainly in Europe... Um, it, as you know better than most people, it's huge. And, and, and there are more people in Europe that watch World Cup biathlon every weekend than there are Americans that watch Monday Night Football. Now, if you put that wow. in perspective, it's like, whoa, okay. Now, granted, it's, you know, a number of countries in Europe, but that's a lot of enthusiasm for the sport of biathlon and, and cross country is comparable. So to see uh, if, if what we saw in Quebec uh, a couple of weekends ago uh, were actually taking place in Europe, it would be no big deal because they have that kind of turnout, that kind of enthusiasm week after week for, for World Cup biathlon and cross country events. But in North America, that's pretty special and hopefully that's an indicator of of what's to come. Yeah, it it makes me think that that the sky is truly the limit in this case, and and that uh, we could see even greater things as we move forward. Let's talk about trails and Morton Trails and um, your company and the work that you do, Morty. Um, you've been doing this quite a long time. I don't know how many years, but certainly what more than ten, right? Or, yeah, that's actually closer to I guess twenty five oh, now. Oh, oh okay. Wait, so yeah. I um, actually I. Uh, I gave up my coaching job here at Dartmouth uh, in 1989, and within a year or so, um, basically, by again by good fortune, the stumbled on to this. Um, let's say at the initially avocation of designing trails, and uh, primarily through good luck and and some convenient timing. Uh, was able to find this little niche um, and and um, make a make a career out of it. And well, you certainly have. Yeah, it's how been, many trails have you designed? Uh, yeah, actually, Peter, we just uh, with the help of uh, the folks I work with, we we uh, kind of tallied up the different projects, and at this point, we're just about two hundred. Um, wow. That does that doesn't count probably another dozen or so that are sort of in the pipeline that we're 
reasonably certain that we will start on within the next few months, but uh, there have been, been about 200 projects. And the gist of this is is not, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, not just high-performance trails or trails that would be used on World Cups or, or that kind of thing, but, but uh, uh, the hugest variety from recreational uh, loops and tracks. And I know here in uh, Thetford, uh, where we happen to live, there there's a wonderful trail system that you developed, and it gets a lot of multi-use, multi-use being one of the big words that I think I hear people say when they talk about cross-country ski tracks now. That's exactly right. Um, it's very rare, in fact, these days that we do a trail that's intended for just one use. Almost always uh, people are thinking in terms of year-round use. And uh, so if, you, if you're talking year-round, very often, uh, especially if you're in the northern part of the country, you're talking about skiing and snowshoeing in the wintertime. Now uh, there's more and more interest in fat tire biking in the winter as well. And then in the summertime, you're talking trail running, walking, hiking, um, in in some cases mountain biking, although often those are actually se- separate, distinct trails. Mountain bikers love single track, and uh, of course cross-country ski trails these days have to be significantly wider to accommodate skating as well as classic skiing. Yeah, and um, we all, we occasionally get into uh, trails for equestrian uses for uh-huh. horseback riding. As oh, well. That's interesting. So you run the gamut. Morty, um, when you and I were racing, the, the classic saw was, uh, uh, as I recall anyway, a, a cross-country trail should be a third flat, a third uphill, a third downhill. But for all intents and purposes, as we look at the sport, and I'm talking now about performance skiing, um, flats have been relatively eliminated. And, and give me a little overview of wh- what's changing and where we're going with trail design at the uh, more elite levels of sport. Sure. Um, you're absolutely correct that that, that was the, the guideline in the old days, a third flat, a third climb, third descent, uh, and that currently you don't find much flat terrain except perhaps in the um, vicinity of the start-finish where it's a requirement, a certain amount of uh, flat terrain as you're leaving the start and approaching the finish. Actually, in a best-case scenario, you'd like the finish to be a slight climb because you don't want, especially in the wintertime, you don't want skiers gliding to the finish. You'd like them working right to the line. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the most notable thing uh, in terms of how trails used to be is what I mentioned earlier about trail width. And for international competitions now, uh, the guidelines that the International Ski Federation uh basically uh, encourage to avoid um, uh, people interfering with each other, especially in skating races and especially in mass start or pursuit start races. There's a lot more emphasis now on mass start races because the spectators can see instantly who's doing well. And with the old-fashioned interval start races, it was impossible for the spectators to determine who was winning or or not doing well. So we're seeing more mass start races. That means that they would like to have enough room for three skaters to to 
ski side by side unobstructed and you're talking about um, they, they say the standard for the climbs are uh, nine meters wide which is just under 30 feet and for the descents it, it should be um, six meters wide or about 20 feet so for most people especially those of us that learn to ski in places like Putney uh, through the trees and zigzagging uh, you know around rocks and stumps and things that seems like an interstate a 30 foot wide mm -hmm. climb one of the things that's that that maybe is almost uh, uh, sort of a um, reflection back on those old days is for a while these trails w were actually literally becoming like interstates. Um, the, the Olympic course out at uh, Soldier Hollow for the uh, Salt Lake Winter Games, mm -hmm. that was very wide. It was great for spectators because it was mostly open terrain. But one of the things that occurred for the first time there was athletes are acting more like a, a, a cycling race where they get in a train and they'll um, draft behind one another in these big wide open trails. So Vancouver was designed to be much more technical, much more turny, uh, more abrupt climbs and descents to try to get away from that. The, the FIS w was trying to um, discourage that type of uh, skiing where they're just all in one train and basically not really coasting but but trying to position themselves for a final sprint to the finish from from a train so that those are kind of the changes that uh, are underway I think we'll see more uh, technical courses uh, and less of these big uh, what I would say derisively refer to as interstates yeah so Morty, um, with trail design, and, and I always look at uh, course profiles and you know maximum climb, minimum climb, uh, or uh, maximum single climb, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, part science, but here's the kicker: I want to ask you, how much is art? That is a great question, and uh, my, my view is that um, the science uh, or to be more specific, the FIS homologation guidelines, and they're quite specific in terms of where the climbs should be in the course and how um, severe or, or uh, how much elevation gain there should be in the different climbs. Um, but but that's um, those are just uh, sort of the parameters. And then within that, we always try to remember that the the ultimate objective is that this sport should be fun. It, it should be technically challenging. It should be physically challenging. Certainly the race courses should provide a good, fair test for athletes of all ability levels. But the bottom line is it should be fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, another sort of guideline we use is the climbs should be manageable um, and the the descents should be worth the climbs. Mm. Yeah, well said. Well said. Yeah, I was thinking when I was up in um, Canmore last year for the Ski Tour of Canada, how um, and, and and they were cutting edge. 
those trails, I, I think, at the time for Olympic-level racing. How uh, amazingly uh, cutting-edge they still remain, really, you know? Uh, and I don't know, one can't say that about every course anywhere, you know, that there can be a, a more timeless elite-level quality to it. No. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there, there are different philosophies in, in different uh, parts of the world. And it is not uncommon, uh, let's say with biathlon, which I'm most familiar with mm-hmm. in terms of the elite level courses. There are places in Central Europe where the philosophy seems to be, we're going to make this the toughest course on the World Cup. And they are not at all. Now, their terrain... Um, allows them to do that because very often in in Central Europe or the Alps, um, they have fairly steep valley walls and fairly flat valley floors. So they'll put the start-finish stadium and the shooting range and the valley floor and then they'll start climbing and they can basically go up those valley walls as abruptly or as gradually as they want. And in some places, they uh, they are very... um, Abrupt, and the athletes—it's—it's it's a real and the athletes will never openly say, "Oh boy, I don't want to go to, you know, venue X right. because it's just no fun." Because psychologically, that puts them at a disadvantage to their competitors. They always say, "Yeah, I don't mind that. Maybe that's good skiing." But there are other places where they are very open about the fact that, "Oh, I love this course." Because, and they'll give you a reason, you know, the downhills, you can make up time on the downhills if you know how to ski downhills technically well. Um, and of course, one of the big issues now, uh, as uh, our time grows short, but uh, is the issue of uh, uh, double pulling on um, classic sprint trails, an issue that, quite frankly, is still being grappled with. Um, and, you know, it might be too easy in my mind to just simply say, well, make the courses tougher. I, I don't know because the athletes are, are stunningly accomplished at uh, meeting these complex physical challenges. I mean, the strength, the core strength now that you see out there is is extraordinary. That's exactly right, Peter. And in fact, what, you're, what you just described, make the courses harder, that's exactly what the FIS dictated. And recently... Uh, they they came out with a directive saying all sprint courses should now have one climb of at least 15 meters in elevation gain and a second climb of at least 20 meters of elevation gain. And that was specifically for that reason to try to discourage athletes from double pulling on a classic sprint the whole thing. And I, I, my understanding is that in some instances, and it would certainly depend on the snow conditions mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, waxing and so forth, but in some instances the athletes are saying, you know, even with those hills, I'm going to give it a try. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah. Very well said. Morty, I want to thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, our uh, little bit more than half hour has just flown by, and, and we haven't even gotten into the other great stories that I'd like to talk to you about. We'll save that for another edition, okay? That sounds great. Thanks very much for <laughs> oh, having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. 
Uh, it's another edition of Talking with the Gravy Train with uh, our friend John Morton. Very interesting and enlightening conversation. And uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And as always, let us know on SkiTracks.com what uh, you think about today's interview. This is Peter Graves. We'll see you on the trail. So long. Bye.